Would you please take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15. This chapter has been called a turning point in the book of Acts. After this chapter, the Apostle Peter, who has been arguably the most prominent figure until now, his name is mentioned over 60 times until this chapter. And then after chapter 15, he's mentioned no more. Now, he didn't just drop off the face of the earth, but the focus from this chapter, from chapter 16 on, will be that of the Apostle Paul's ministry, primarily his ministry to the Gentiles. Also, after this chapter, the Church of Jerusalem will no longer play a major role in Luke's account of the early church. Again, it continued to exist and and had great influence, but this is the last time it'll be, no, actually be mentioned later, I think in chapter 21 and 22, uh, but it recedes into the background as well. Chapter 15, though, is a very important chapter because it contains the record of a serious, serious problem that had arisen in the church. And it shows us how the church or or the churches dealt with this problem. It contains what's been called the Jerusalem Council. Now, it's been some time since we were in the book of Acts. I counted up eight weeks. Uh, Eight weeks ago, we were in the book of Acts. So I want to give a a bit of a recap, but uh, I want to use this recap to try to tie in what we're going to be dealing with in chapter 15. After Jesus' resurrection and before His ascension, He called and commissioned His disciples to be His witnesses and to preach the gospel to every creature beginning in Jerusalem. And that's how the book of Acts begins. And the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, is the carrying out of this great commission of the Lord. These disciples received this commission from the Lord along with a, with two very important and precious promises. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, and that promise was that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And being baptized by the Holy Spirit, they would receive power to be His witnesses. And so He says, wait till you receive that power from on high. They also had another promise that He, the Lord Jesus Himself, would go with them as they took the Gospel to the four corners of the earth. Matthew 28, we find the Great Commission there as well, but He adds this, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We saw in our Sunday school class that this promise of him being with them to the end of the age shows that this great commission wasn't given just to the apostles, but it was given to them and given to the church through them to take the gospel out because he's with his church even to the end of the age. And the Lord was with them. And he blessed their endeavors with success, a far greater success than they ever, ever could have imagined. 
uh, after the baptism of the Spirit, they immediately began preaching the Word of God and bearing witness in Jerusalem to the resurrection of Christ, just as He had commanded them. But on that same day, the Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter stood up and addressed a very, very large crowd, a large crowd of Jews from all over the earth. They'd come there uh, for the feasts and so forth. And he said to them, men of Israel, he got their attention, hear these words. And then he began to proclaim to all of these Jews from all over the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And he showed them how that he had done so many good works and that God had borne witness to him through miracles, real miracles. Nobody can explain those away. They were real. And they were bearing witness that he is the Son of God, that what he was saying and what he was claiming was true. And he tells them that Jesus Christ went about doing good works. And Jesus Christ, you took him and crucified him. It was part of God's eternal plan, His plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption, where He had planned all along to come to this earth and to go to the cross. But Peter lays the responsibility at their doorstep for the sin of crucifying Him. But he said, God raised Him up. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. God raised Him up. And then he says, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The most amazing thing happened. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them what they needed to do. They needed to repent and believe the gospel. And to be baptized into Christ's community, into His church. And so they did. And it says that 3,000 souls were added to the church. Jesus didn't see that kind of success in His ministry. But here the disciples with the power of the Spirit had such success on their ministry. And that's what we see going on throughout the book of Acts. Now, in chapter 4, that number rose to at least 5,000, maybe more. Maybe it was 5,000 plus the 3,000. We're not sure, but we see the Lord blessing and adding to His church. And what a, what a day of rejoicing that must have been. Now, of course, not everyone liked what they were preaching. And it wasn't long before this great persecution arose against the church there in Jerusalem. It began with the stoning of one of their select deacons, Stephen. Stoned him to death because they couldn't tolerate him preaching the gospel. Stoned him. And this great persecution arose. Uh, and, and it says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. They stayed back and remained in Jerusalem. But that, however, that persecution and the scattering ended up to be a very, very good thing for the spread of the gospel. God does wonderful things. He moves in mysterious ways. Persecution, oh no, run! He's spreading the gospel. Because it says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. They didn't go into hiding. 
They didn't take off and run as far as they could and, 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 and assumed a new name and hid their identity. No, they preached the Lord Jesus Christ. Philip, another one of those deacons, one of the original seven deacons, he went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them, that is, to the Samaritans. Now, that was a tremendously significant thing because you know the Jews historically had no dealings with the Samaritans. They wouldn't eat with them. I mean, they, they would have nothing to do with them. In fact, you remember when Jesus uh, said, we must go through Samaria, and they were puzzled because Jews normally would go around Samaria rather than to go through it, so they wouldn't be defiled by these Samaritans. And here they are. They're in this, they're, the disciples are in Samaria, and they're preaching the gospel. And these are these Samaritans are believing. It says the city of Samaria believed. What a wonderful thing. Now, things were changing. Things were changing. And I don't mean simply that times were changing. No, things were changing all right because Jesus Christ was doing such a work in that day, which continues to this very day, that would shake to the very foundations what Jewish believers thought they knew at the time, thought they knew about the character of the kingdom of God. You remember back there in chapter 1 when Jesus gave this commission, or He's about to give this commission, and the disciples, they have a question. (laughs) Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Are you going to restore the kingdom? (laughs) John Calvin said that there are as many errors in that question as there are words. (laughs) Are you going to restore? We could point out some of the errors, but essentially one of the fundamental errors was that they were still thinking that the kingdom of God as being essentially Jewish in nature. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? A lot of people in our day believe that's what the kingdom is about. It's a Jewish kingdom. They, I think they're wrong, very wrong. Jesus was going to blow that idea right out of the water and blow their minds as well. Because He was going to build His church just as He promised. And His church would include not only Jews, but even Samaritans. And that's what we read there in chapter 8. Samaritans have received the Word of God. They were amazed. They even sent the apostles down to check this whole thing out. And, and they laid their hands on them. And they received the Spirit and They were baptized and so forth. But that's not all. Christ's kingdom would consist not only of Jews and Samaritans, but Gentiles as well. Gentiles, these Gentile dogs, they would be part of the kingdom. Those who were afar off would be brought near. What amazing thing. Gentiles would be included in His kingdom as well. Now, bring, to bring this about and to accomplish His eternal purposes, Christ came to Peter in a vision. You remember that. And we'll not go into all the details of that. But He essentially directed Peter, Simon Peter, the chief apostle, to go down to the town of Caesarea to a house of a certain man named Cornelius. Remember Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. That's right, a Gentile. And He sends Peter a Jewish apostle, to preach the gospel. When Peter arrived at his house, and Cornelius was waiting for him, as you remember, God sent a vision to him as well. 
and told him to send for Peter. And he fetched Peter and brought him back. So Peter, Cornelius is waiting for Peter. And one of the first things that Peter said when he walked in his house was that, said to Cornelius and the rest, is, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. <laughs> but he says, God has shown me. And God had to show him. He didn't get it yet. And perhaps still didn't get it, but he got more of it than he did before. God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And so Cornelius, who had gathered there with his family and friends, he had invited many to come. He knew God had sent for this man to come, this Peter, an apostle, to come to preach the Word of God. And so he gets his friends and he gets his family together and he says, we're all present before God to hear the things commanded you by God. You give us God's message. And so Peter begins to tell them about what God had done and about the vision and so forth. But uh, he goes on to say, whoever believes in Him, in Jesus, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. He's preaching this gospel message to these Gentiles. And it says, and while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed... Uh, that's Christian Jews. Uh, those of the circumcision who believed who were with Peter, it says they were astonished. Uh, their minds were blown. What's going on? It said that Jesus was going to shake them to their very foundations. What's going on? They said they were astonished. And as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For when they heard Him speak, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That was an evidence at the time that they were receiving the Spirit of God. And then Peter said, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so they were. They agreed. And so they baptized them. Well, far from being an anomaly or a rare occurrence, this became a pattern. Uh, as one commentator said, what began as a trickle quickly became a torrent. Not just a few Gentiles here or there, or this household here, but everywhere they went, these Gentiles were coming. Uh, if you turn over to chapter 11 for a moment, chapter 11, it says, and now uh, verse 19 it says, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Antioch is a key word there because that's where this church uh, comes from, the Antioch church, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. So here were some disciples. They were preaching. They were taking the gospel to different places and, and all, but they were still preaching just to the Jews. But it says some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. But what a wonderful thing was going on. God was saving these Gentiles. These Gentiles, that's right. And He's adding them to the church. 
Notice it goes on. When news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. They sent him to check things out. What's going on down there? We're hearing these Gentiles are being saved. And so it says that Barnabas, verse 23, when he, uh, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. It, blessings just keep coming, don't they? More get saved. And that is a blessing. That's a great blessing for any church or community, any city, to have, to have people converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, added to the, to the church. Well, Barnabas was so excited, he goes and looks for Saul, that's Paul, uh, and brings him back. He's in Tar- uh, Tarsus somewhere, and he goes and finds him. And so it says, for a whole year they assembled the ch- with the church and taught a great many people. Well, this, this church in, in Antioch, this new fledgling church, grew. And it grew numerically, we can see, but it grew spiritually. And it, it matured, and, and it became a leading church. They even sent an offering to help with the poor saints in Jerusalem. They're helping the mother church now, and so forth. Well, the, things are going well, and, and uh, they become a missionary-sending church. Turn over to chapter 13. Chapter 13, it says now, verse 1, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers and he lists those. And it says in verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So we see this church in Antioch was commanded by none other than the Holy Spirit to set aside these two men. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, and we all, as I just said, we now refer to him as Paul, and from here on, that's what he's called in the book of Acts, uh, for, for the work which he had called them. Now, uh, the work to which he had called them was simply to take the gospel into the world, the Great Commission. And so the church sent them out on what would be Paul's first missionary journey. And that we find here in chapter 13 and in chapter 14. We follow Paul and Barnabas as they, they travel over to the island of Cyprus and then on up into uh, the, the cities in Galatia and so forth. And God was blessing everywhere they went. Everywhere they went, it doesn't say there's a large number believed, but many of the places they went, it says, and many believed. And many of those who believed were Gentiles. In fact, they, they traveled on up into the, church, uh, the cities in Galatia to another Antioch. And in that city, in that Antioch, they entered the synagogue. And uh, the, the one who was leading the synagogue saw these men and maybe had talked to them earlier, but said, do you have anything to say? Well, boy, they had a lot to say. Uh, they had to, they, Paul started preaching the gospel. And, and uh, the Lord began to bless again. But one of the interesting things, it says uh, there in Antioch, after he preached in the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. 
And so the Gentiles, they want to hear this gospel. Are you eager to hear the gospel? Uh, do you even care about the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But the, they were eager. They wanted to hear. Uh, the Jews, though, didn't like that very much. Uh, look at chapter 13, verse 44. Notice it says, um, yes, in 44, and the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. They certainly didn't. You would think they wouldn't care what the Gentiles did, but they cared. Uh, They didn't like this at all. And then in verse 46, it says, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, you Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So here's a change again. More changes. Now he's going to focus his ministry more on the Gentiles. It's not that he left the Jews behind completely. He didn't. He still had a desire that they be saved. He prayed for them and he witnessed to them whenever he could. But now he's turning to the Gentiles, he says. In verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, that would be Gentiles, believed. You see, God was blessing. He was blessing the work which He had called them to do. And there's an important principle there. If God calls you to do something, He's going to go with you and He's going to bless you. And I believe that He blesses us the most when we're carrying out that duty of telling others about Christ. But Jesus was building His church. And His church would be would include people from every tribe and kindred and nation, Jews and Gentiles. The Gospel, Paul says, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Gospel is for the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, preaching the Gospel to the world and seeing these Gentiles come in, or even the Jews, it would not go without opposition from the enemy. And we've seen plenty of that. I didn't really touch on those things except at the beginning. But we saw the persecution. That's the opposition it took. The the persecution. And that was to be expected. When Jesus made that promise, I will build my church, what did He say? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There will be opposition, but it will not overcome. The opposition will not be victorious. Christ will. In His kingdom, He will plant His church, building His church. Satan attacks the church as well as individual Christians. And he he does so, first of all, from without, through persecution of one form or another. It may be verbal. It may be physical. But he does this through persecution. But the devil has more than one weapon in his arsenal, doesn't he? More than one arrow in his quiver. And he uses not only opposition from without, 
but opposition from within. Within the church, that's right, within the church in the form of false teaching. The very thing we read of in our scripture reading today. Beware. Hold fast to the faith that's delivered once for all to the saints. Stand fast in that. People are going to come in. Peter, as, as our brother mentioned, Second Peter, uh, Peter talks about uh, that false teachers will come in among you, he says. Later, the Apostle Paul would warn the church in Ephesus there in Acts chapter 20. He'd been with them for a number of years and now he's going to leave. And he says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. It's coming from without. But then he says, and also from among yourselves will men rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. We read in Jude 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning the common salvation, I found necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And that faith he's talking about is not your personal faith and belief in Christ. Sometimes when it speaks about the faith, it's talking about the body of doctrine, the truth in God's Word. Contend earnestly for the faith. Because that faith is going to be attacked. And that faith has been attacked since the beginning. Here the church is still barely off the ground. And Satan is bringing in the false teachers. As I mentioned, Second Peter 2, he says, There were false teachers among the people. That is, in the Old Testament, it's nothing new. Even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. So they're going to come in among you, he says. In chapter 14, as we come to the end of that chapter, Paul is, and Barnabas, they, they finished up this, this first missionary journey. I think they've been, they were gone for, for some time. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't say how long. I can't remember exactly. But uh, notice it says, uh, they're going back now and they're visiting the churches they planted, which is an interesting thing, too. They went out preaching the gospel, but they established churches. Churches, because God did not desire for Christians to walk alone. Oh, you get saved and you just go back and do your own thing and, and have your own personal relationship with God and that's all it means. No, he established churches. Churches so that... His people would come together, called out of the world and called together. That's what the word ecclesia means, to be called out. They were called out of the world and called together to walk together, to promote the doctrine, to promote peace and uh, to all sorts of things, to, to provoke one another, to love and to good works, hold one another accountable and so forth. And it says in verse 26 that from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for which they had completed. And then they give this report. And when they gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and how He'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. What a wonderful thing. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And Paul and Barnabas are ministering there. Things are going so well. The church in Antioch, though as strong as it was and as stable as it was, even with teachers like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas there to, to guide them and lead them along was still susceptible to the influence 
of false teaching and of heresy, even damning heresy. And you turn over to chapter 15. Chapter 15. We read, and I'll read through verse 5. And certain men came down from Judea, that is, to the church in Antioch, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Ah, oh, these Gentiles have been brought into the kingdom, told they've, they have a remission of sins, they've been forgiven, they're part of the family of God. And now they come and they say, wait a minute, you guys aren't circumcised? You have to be circumcised to be saved. All right, and so let's just finish reading this, this section here. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, described in the conversion of the Gentiles. This is what they're talking about. And this is a big thing to be talking about. Gentiles are being saved. It's hard to even grasp the excitement that must have been there of what was going on. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem and they received, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and reported all things that God had done with them. But some of them of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So, who were these certain men? Where did they come from? What were they teaching? Well, who they were, it says they, uh, they, they came down from Judea. They came from the church. Uh, in verse 5 here, uh, it indicates that uh, they were from the sect of the Pharisees who believed. These are the ones who rose up saying these things. Now, the Pharisees, you remember Jesus, how he dealt with Pharisees, and rarely did he have anything good to say about them. Uh, because they were legalists. They, 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 they were like the Pharisee who came to the temple. He was trusting in himself that he was righteous by his own works lifting himself up by his own bootstraps, and he despised others who were beneath him. That's a Pharisee. Uh, they had a very superficial religion. They cleaned the outside of the cup, and they left the inside all filthy. They so loved the law of God that that became their idol. That became their trust and their hope of keeping the law of God. Like again, that Pharisee in the temple, he stood praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, adulterers, and so forth. And then he sees the old publican over there and not like that publican. Thank you, I'm not like him. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like him. Oh, they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and viewing others with contempt. Well, it, 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 they were saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They had a reputation for keeping the law, or so they thought. They were legalists in every sense of the word. These Pharisees, they believed in Christ. It says they believed. They believed that He was the Messiah. They believed in His resurrection, no doubt. But they seemed to bring some of their Pharisaic baggage with them. 
we all have this tendency to bring all sorts of baggage from our former life, from our upbringing before we became Christians. And this is something we need to recognize. Uh, and we need to deal with it. We, we have these ideas. Maybe they came from shows we watched or books we read or, or discussions we had with our friends and we're getting philosophy from all over, but it's all over the wrong place. It's from the world. And we need to test all things. It doesn't mean everything we believe was wrong, but we need to make sure what we believed was right because it may very well be wrong. These Pharisees, though they were now Christian Jews, there was still something very wrong in what they were thinking. We need to recognize and deal with these things. We need to test these things. We need to be careful not to hold on to things that we believe or uh, because we were simply taught them growing up or because we've always believed that and it sounded good and reasonable and never questioned it. Well, there's times to question things. Well, it says they believed, and does that mean they were Christians? Well, one of the things we will do as we study through this, and we're going to have to end here in a moment, but you need to read the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians should be read right along with this, just like Second Peter and Jude. Read those together, you'll understand it all much better. The book of Galatians was written to the churches in Galatia where Paul had visited, and, and this was the very problem that he deals with there. And he even is, talks about this whole setting and everything. Now, there's question whether he wrote that letter before the conclusion, uh, because he doesn't mention a letter or things of that nature. But uh, anyway, uh, these, these false, Peter called, or Paul calls them false brethren. He identifies them not by name, uh, but by their actions and their beliefs and so forth. The circumcision, he calls them. He calls them false brethren. You know, just because you're a member of a church doesn't mean you're a real Christian, you know. <laughs> you're, I remember I heard a preacher when I was a brand new Christian. We thought this was just a profound statement. But he said, just because you're born in a chicken coop doesn't make you a chicken. Uh, the, the thing is, if you're born in a chicken coop, you're probably a chicken. <laughs> I don't know too many people that are born in a chicken coop. I think Faye Reeves says she was. But that's the only person I've ever heard of. But just because you belong to a church or you go to church or you grow up in a church doesn't mean you're a Christian, you know. It doesn't mean that at all. Well, uh, these men, if they believed what they were promoting, they weren't Christians. Well, they came down from Judea, from the church in Jerusalem. And it wasn't unusual to receive visits from the church in Jerusalem. You remember, we just read in about the church in Antioch when they got word of it. They got news of what was happening there in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent down Barnabas to check it out. So it wasn't unusual to send people from this church, more experience from the apostles and so forth. But these men came with a pretense of humility and a pretense of authority which is often the mark of a false prophet, and usually is. They come saying, Thus saith the Lord, when God never said it. That's the prophets of old in the Old Testament. They were called false prophets. They said God sent them, but God said, I never sent them. Well, these men came with the pretense of authority. Maybe it was just an assumed authority. or some. We're coming from the big church, and you need to listen to us. We need to teach you some things. Uh, but they really weren't 
commended by that church. If you if you look down in verse 22, and I'm jumping way ahead, but just to point out the fact, uh, it says they they wrote this letter uh, at the end of this council. They wrote a letter to send to the church in Antioch and, and some of the other churches. But it says, uh, this is what they wrote in verse 23. They wrote this letter to them, the apostles, elders, and brethren, to the brethren who are, in, uh, of the, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, so these are the people that, that came preaching this word, uh, this, this false doctrine to them, uh, uh, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, and notice, to whom we gave no such commandment. So they came saying, we're sent by the church in Jerusalem. And this may be the reason they decided to take it on to Jerusalem. These men are saying, you said it there. You told, you're, you're teaching this in Jerusalem. You see how that would upset everybody. Jerusalem is teaching this. Why aren't we teaching this? And so, uh, they, but Jerusalem never said that. And that's what they, they make that point. Whom we never commanded. We didn't give this command. They came to you under a false pretense, telling, well, there's a false teaching. And so uh, they were teaching. What were they teaching? I'll have to sum it up here, but they were teaching, and it really couldn't be stated more clearly than we find here in verse 2, unless you are circumcised, or verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved. That's pretty simple. Uh, they're being taught that you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith alone in Christ alone. Now somebody says, well, I believe faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. You say, you're a Christian. <laughs> Don't say, wait a minute. It's not faith in Christ that saves you. It's faith alone in Christ that saves you. And that's a big difference. They were receiving Jesus. They were believing in Him. They were believing in His resurrection. They may believe He's the Son of God and all that. But the fatal flaw, they added something to faith. It's not just believing in Jesus. It's believing in Jesus plus you need to be circumcised. Whenever you say Jesus plus anything, it's a false teaching. And it's a serious false teaching. We're not talking about an argument over the, the color of the chairs or the color of the choir robes or something of that nature. We're talking about a, a doctrine of salvation. How is a person saved? Is he saved by faith in Christ alone? Or is it faith plus works? Whatever those works are. Now, this happened to be circumcision. We don't deal with that so much anymore as far as our, are you circumcised? That, that's not a point of religion around here anyway. But at that time, in that place, in that day, it was circumcision. If you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. So here's a person, I believe in Jesus, I've been baptized, all these, but I'm not, I'm not saved. I'm still under the wrath of God. If I die now in my sins, I'll go to hell. An exceedingly dangerous doctrine. They were teaching a works-based salvation. Believing in Christ is not enough. You must be circumcised and keep certain 
ceremonial and dietary laws of Moses and so forth. And it says in verse 2 that Barnabas and Saul had no small dissension and dispute with them. No small dissension and dispute means it was a big <laughs> dissension and dispute. It was real big. And in fact, the tone of, of Acts 15 is pretty mild. You read Galatians, and somebody said, he sounds a whole lot like Martin Luther. Because he did. He, he came out and called a spade a spade and said, no, this is wrong. And, and I, I wish they would just mutilate themselves. This so-called circumcision. And he says it not only in Galatians, he says it in Ephesians, he says it in Philippians. He says it in the book of Romans. It was a big issue. And some people think that all dissension and dispute are evil and should be avoided at all cost. Now, that's a sad state of affairs when you say it should be no dissension. No dissension. Oh, peace. And that's what people, they'll, they'll purchase peace at the expense of anything and everything, including truth. I attended a Christian college where they had a bulletin board in the student center. It was called the Wittenberg Door, named after the Wittenberg Door in, in Germany. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to that door of the church. And that was where people could post things that would be discussed at another meeting of some sort. Well, people started posting things that started causing some arguments. And uh, some parents got wind of it, and so they didn't like it. And so they changed the whole thing and the whole direction of it. And they, they changed it to a, quote, think on these things board. <laughs> it's got to be positive. It's got to be uplifting. can't be controversial. Controversy isn't always bad. And sometimes you breathe a sigh and you go, oh, I can't handle any more controversy. But often, as someone has said, it's the handmaiden of truth. It's when there's a problem and they have to talk about it. They have to look at the scriptures and compare it and see what's the truth here. This, they say this, you have, if you want to be saved, it's by faith alone and Christ alone. No, you have to be circumcised. That's a problem. They're not saying the same thing. And that's a, that's the way people get, oh, we're really saying the same thing, aren't we? No, we're not saying the same thing. It's, it's, it's completely different. You're saying that you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and this one says you're faith plus baptism. A lot of Christians say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. I believe that every saved person ought to be baptized. But is that a basis of your salvation? Is that a requirement to be saved? No, not at all. And you say that, you're following the same as these, they're called Judaizers here. You're following the same false teaching. It's not an innocent thing. It's not a small thing. Some even bemoan the 16th century Reformation. They look at it as some unnecessary squabble. It was just, uh, you know, uh, personalities. His personalities got in the way. And they were really saying the same thing different ways. No, they weren't. They weren't. Well, it says we know Paul and Barnabas debated with them. And we don't know their arguments. But again, read the book of Galatians this week. Read it and you'll see. Here was the arguments. Here's what Paul, you didn't tell us what Paul and Barnabas said. I believe the book of Galatians does. He deals with it head on. Well, these Judaizers taught circumcision. Others believe other things to be saved. This is what Paul says. I wanted to go to Galatians this morning. I just don't have the time, but we'll look at it. You read chapter 1, what he says to the Galatians. And he says there, 
if anybody comes, anybody, whether an apostle or anybody else, an angel, even if an angel were to walk in here and preach to you another gospel than the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, damned. Now you say, oh, it's not that important. Well, the Apostle Paul said it was that important. The Word of God says it's that important. There are things to fight about. I don't believe we ought to just try to look for fights. But there are things worth fighting for, contending for, as we read in Jude. And here is one of them. And the Apostle Paul would not let anything get by that was going to distort the gospel or mislead people to put a hope and trust in anything else except Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross in dying for our sins. So what, is your, what is your hope of salvation? Do you believe you're, you believe you're saved? Do you believe when you die you're going to go to heaven and be with the Lord forever? What's the basis of your hope? If you say anything other than the basis of my hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, what He did on my behalf on the cross, that's my only hope. If you add anything else to that, your hopes are going to dissolve right before you when you stand before Christ. I've asked this question, used to ask it every now and then, but what if you get to heaven and you say, well, you know, the cliche, why should I let you in? And you say, because I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins on the cross and that he was raised again. And he's my savior. He's my only hope. And what if the Lord said, that's not enough? That's not enough. Where would your mind go? Oh, well, I was baptized and I went to church every week. I went to church three times a week. I gave lots of money to the church. You see what you're revealing? Christ wasn't your only hope. The right answer to that, what else? Nothing else. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's my only hope in life and in death. That I am not my own, but I've been bought with a price. If I get to heaven, there's only one explanation for it. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. He died for my sins. According to the Scriptures, He was buried. He was raised from the dead. That is the Gospel. You deviate from that, it's another Gospel. Not really another Gospel. Let's pray.